I came in, took a look, and said, This is ridiculous. Only someone without talent, a computer nerd, would think it was useful. They were not happy with me. another edition of the Narrative First Podcast, the weekly podcast where story is always king. I am your host, Jim Hull, the voice of Narrative First, and this is episode number 50, Robert McKee and Sid Field, Hate Dramatica. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Story Structure and Story Analysis. It's the golden anniversary of the Narrative First Podcast, and what better way to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Narrative First Podcast then to start it off with how much Robert McKee and Sid Field dislike the dramatic theory of story. Now, I had heard this before, and it's funny to me and sad because uh, back at CalArts, at the California Institute of the Arts, when I was in the character animation program, I convinced the head of the department, Bob Winquist, long live Bob Winquist, I convinced him to uh, pay for me to go to one of Robert McKee's story structure seminars. This was way back in 1993. And I was super nervous to even ask him for that amount of money. And I, I managed to build up the courage to go ask him. And he said, sure, no problem. And he, he wrote it out for me, cut me the check, and I went to the workshop. And I thought it was great. I loved it. I love Robert McKee. This was before the storybook, before all the, you know, the entire, before he became, you know, historical adaptation and all these other different venues. And it was funny because I remember an executive turning to me about halfway through the first day and she asked if I was a student. And I said, well, why is it that obvious? And she said, yeah, you're the only one here taking notes. Everybody else was just there for the weekend because I guess they were being forced to. And they didn't love it as much as I did. I guess they didn't have dreams and aspirations of, of sitting in a darkened movie theater with a notebook and writing down different aspects of story and marking down when things happened and and how narrative actually works, which I guess now, come to think of it, I guess I've always wanted to do something similar to narrative first, even way back then when I was inspired by Robert McKee. And of course, prior to that, I had read Sid Field's book. He had a couple different books because his was the only book in the 80s talking about story structure and story analysis, and I loved it. I ate it up. I ate all that stuff. If you see my shelves here in my office, I have every single screenwriting book ever made. Less so since I started writing my own stuff about 10 years ago. But prior to that, I would always read as much as I possibly could. And so I was deeply inspired by Robert McKee and Sid Field to begin this career that I'm on now, story consulting and writing and helping people tell stories. So it was hilarious earlier this week when I was just surfing through the internet, as I often do, looking for dramatic screenwriting and seeing what's out there. I came upon a book that was published uh, two years ago in 2015 by Julian Hoxter, an associate professor of screenwriting in the cinema department of the San Francisco State University. And the book is called The Pleasures of Structure, Learning Screenwriting Through Case Studies. That is a great title. Super, it's great. It's exactly the kind of thing that I would that I would wish I had time to write. Uh, th there's nothing more pleasurable than story structure. I have to agree with that statement. Or at least, you know, nothing as interesting to read as a story structure book for screenwriting. It's not so much to discover a template that you can just plug things in and and get your story finished. It's more about, to me, the exciting and interesting part is not what's worked just because it it's worked, but why it works, which is why I was so drawn to Dramatica because it's the psychology 
of story structure that makes it work. It's actually based on the mind's problem-solving process. It's not based on what has worked or some cultural sort of mythology thing that you find in the hero's journey or, you know, say the cat stuff is all about what has worked in the past and what's been successful. The thing about Dramatica, the thing why I've spent the last 20 years learning it and learning something new all the time is that it's based on the psychology of the human mind trying to solve problems. So to me, that's the interesting part is like why it actually works, not why certain films or books have worked in the past. So I was excited to find this new book, The Pleasures of Structure, and especially since they were talking about Dramatica, until I read what it was they were actually saying about Dramatica. Uh, I skipped right to the good parts, and during the section on story development software, uh, he interviewed both Robert McKee and Sid Field. And uh, Julian says, the use of story development software is controversial even within the screenwriting industry, however. Robert McKee is a critic of Dramatica. I came in, took a look, and said, This is ridiculous. Only someone without talent, a computer nerd, would think it was useful. They were not happy with me. Okay. A computer nerd. A computer nerd. Okay. Um, that's a great uh, explanation of the, the kind of person that would be into the psychological aspects of story structure. A bit of a Luddite here because, of course, the reason why he didn't think it was useful is because he didn't take the time to actually learn what it was all about. And they just presented it to him and he went, bah, ha, ha, and he flipped the table over and then stomped his way out of the room and couldn't wait to talk about Casablanca again for the 500th time. Um, that's why they were not happy with him because he didn't like actually sit down and, and have a discussion. I don't know the exact details, but I imagine it was something like that. He he completely discounted the entire theory purely out of ignorance and panic. That section goes on to read, For his part, Sid Field rejected programs, despite subsequently being involved with a similar piece of tech for Final Draft. It's all horrific. I don't understand a word of what they're saying. I don't know what Sid Field sounds like, so that's my, my impersonation of him. So here we have two story gurus, two screenwriting gurus, uh, of the 80s and 90s, uh, defining Dramatica both as horrific and ridiculous, uh, which are superlatives based on completely irrational thought and, uh, you know, didn't even take an amount of time to actually learn about it. It's like last week's article on Schrodinger's cat and the post in the screenplay forums about how trust has way too many definitions. I don't, why is it, trust can mean too much trust or too little trust or not enough trust in relation to other people and that is actually the benefit of dramatica is that it's not a template that just tells you exactly what to do it helps you organize uh, the the thematic issues that you're trying to get across the different points of view on conflict that you're trying to get across and says well if you are going to point to it here and, and you're going to label this as trust then this is what everything else is going to look like and if you haven't listened to that podcast last week episode 49 uh, Schrodinger's cat. Uh, your story is Schrodinger's cat. You'll want to check that out because I, I go into more detail about that. But here, I thought this was hilarious because if you think about it, stories with a goal of progress have a consequence of the pre-conscious. So if you look at the dramatica table of story elements and you look at the, the way everything is balanced out, you have an overall story goal and an overall story consequence. So the protagonist is for the goal and the antagonist is for the consequence, right? The protagonist pursues and considers the overall story goal and the antagonist prevents and reconsiders. And they're usually directed towards the consequence. You can almost think of it as like the antagonist is for the consequence 
and the protagonist is for the goal. So in this case, if you think about progress, which is essentially what Dramatica is, it's an evolution of story structure and narrative and how things are changing because of the interlocking between uh, technology and our own lives and how we come to a better understanding of our own problem-solving process through the machines that we actually create to solve problems, you have a goal of progress and a consequence of pre-conscious. So in other words, only an antagonist stuck in the impulsive responses of the pre-conscious would use words like ridiculous and horrific to a, prevent progress, and B, motivate people to reconsider a new way of thinking. So you have Robert McKee and Sid Field basically acting as antagonists within the context of this narrative regarding the development of an understanding of story structure. They are working as antagonists, and me, I'm working as the protagonist. I'm pursuing and considering progress. So I'm pursuing progress with everything that I'm doing on the site and the podcast and all that stuff. And I'm trying to get people to consider how great and how wonderful understanding Dramatica is and understanding how to build a competent and efficient narrative structure. So I'm super comfortable being the protagonist on this one. Robert McKee, Sid Field, they just want writers to stay locked in the dark ages of story structure. They want to keep the 1980s and 1990s alive, which I totally understand. I love the 80s. I love it. Seriously, Def Leppard, Journey. I'm all about that. But when it comes to narrative structure, I don't mind moving into the 21st century. So I will leave a link in the show notes about Robert McKee and Sid Field hating Dramatica. And I can't wait to read more of Julian Hoxer's book, The Pleasures of Structure, Learning Screenwriting Through Case Studies. Just flipping through it, uh, it's interesting in terms of the article this week, he mentions uh, how to train your dragon. And he, uh, just flipping through, I noticed he labeled Stoic the antagonist, which is great. He's essentially pointing out the influence character, what Dramatica considers to be the influence character. And one of the great things about Dramatica is this idea that you can split out the objective functions of protagonist and antagonist from the subjective functions of influence character and main character, kind of the emotional aspects of it. And most of the time, especially Robert McKee and Sid Field would always say the protagonist is the main character. Of course, that's who it's about. What are their wants and needs? That kind of stuff. And if you put the protagonist and main character into the same player, that's when you have a hero. And if you put the influence character and the antagonist into the same player, then you have a villain. Now, and that would be something like the Joker in The Dark Knight. So Batman or Bruce Wayne is the protagonist in that story. And the Joker is both the influence character and the antagonist. So you have a hero versus a villain classic story there. But if you look at how to train your dragon specifically, and I guess I'm already talking about the article, I guess I'll just go ahead and mention this right now because it seems to be right in context. Uh, if you think of Stoic, he's neither, he's not a villain, right? I mean, if, if he truly was the antagonist, and I understand Hoxter is using a different terminology, but just think of it this way. if The great thing about Dramatica, and there are lots of great things about Dramatica, but one of the great things is that it keeps everything uh, consistent. So all the different terminologies have a definite definition to them. And then when you look at them in terms of different stories, you get to have different understandings of that narrative instead of kind of having this warbly definition that's fluid depending on the context of the story you're looking at. You know, if you read any of the Save the Cat books, he has those 15 beats and sometimes the beats go in order, sometimes they don't and they're all over the place. As long as he can identify something that fits in one of the beats, then it's great. 
but the order of it and the definition of them isn't as important as just the fact that they're actually there. Same thing with labeling the antagonist, you know, labeling somebody like the like stoic as an antagonist when really he is the influence character but if you combine the influence character and the antagonist together you get a villain so stoic is not the villain and hiccup is not the hero he's not a traditional hero he's not a protagonist he's not pursuing anything and and he's not like you know he's not even like considering he's not moving towards a goal and when i get into the discussion of how to train your dragon for this week i'll describe and explain why being able to split protagonist and antagonist away from the main character and influence character can give you a much more complex and sophisticated model of narrative structure. And I promise it's not horrific, and I promise it's not ridiculous. Next up this week, professional story analyses. Last week, I talked to you about deliberate storytelling and the push to move away from uh, simple education and simply consulting and kind of combining both consultation and education at the same time to create something that's enlightening and collaborative. And it was a process that I'm now calling deliberate storytelling. And everybody that I've transferred over to this new approach is just, it's gone bonkers, it's been great. Even people that have struggled for months to try and understand the dramatic theory of story and how it applies to creating their own narrative, getting in there and working together and developing out the story, it's been a monumental success and I'm super happy and very excited about it. On top of that, what I'm doing now is I'm moving more towards a professional story analysis model on the site. What this means is that all the analyses on the site, all the story forms, everything that's there in regards to a specific understanding of a, a narrative, either in a film or novel or play, although most of them are film just because of the, the time constraints. Like I can get one done in two hours and it's great. All those are now exclusive to Narrative First members. And what I'm going to do is start to develop a place where you can have access to story analytics. And what you'll do is you'll be able to go in there and compare the story that you are telling now against stories in the past and their different story points and compare them against Rotten Tomatoes, against domestic box office, international box office, and be able to predict how successful your story will be simply based on the structural story points. Now, at first, this is just gonna be the story analyses. So in the past, I've made available the articles, the podcasts, and the analyses on a weekly basis just for free. I've just been giving everything away for free. And I still wanna be able to educate and to you know, expose people to how Dramatica works and how great an understanding of the story is, how it can improve, vastly improve the storytelling and you know, all the different approaches and stuff that I've come up with. So the articles will still always be there. That's always been the lifeblood of, of the site ever since 06, 07 when I started to do that. So those will still be there. The through line Thursdays, I'll still put those up because those are a general understanding of the story forms. But the detailed story forms and the thematic stuff that's going on underneath, all the important stuff and how the plot progressions work and the different characters that show up and their different points of view, all that is going to be in an exclusive area of the site that uh, based on the membership, you know, based on people actually supporting 
the site that way, I'll be able to develop even more tools and methods for writers to be able to actually predict how successful their story will be. And then they can go to their agents or to their producers or to whoever and say, look, my story is a lot like these stories. Uh, it has this point, it has that point. And I can show you right here that if you know if you do a halfway decent job of marketing me and you actually you know and I actually do a, a halfway decent job of, of writing the thing I mean you still have to have the talent to actually write it but just based on the actual model of story based on the actual story mind that is present within the narrative I'm trying to tell this is what we can expect and of course if there are any missing pieces there will be suggestions for how you can fill in those blanks and of course as always you'll be able to work with me in deliberate storytelling to actually shore those deficient areas up and actually make a strong story. So if you'd like to become a member and have access to all the story forms that are there, you can go to narrativefirst.com membership and sign up there. Now I feel really strongly about the quality of this content. When it comes to developing the story form for a particular narrative, if you go on Discuss Dramatica or you go into other sites that you know, try to do analyses off of Dramatica, you'll note that a lot of them, they just, they're not able to put all the pieces together and they'll have different understandings and different, uh, an appreciation of the theory that is is lacking and not as complete or as concrete as the, the analyses and story forms that I've been able to develop uh, over the last 20 years of working with the theory. And I feel really good too about the amount, the quantity of story forms that I'm able to produce on a weekly basis. I've been doing at least one a week. I'll probably be able to push it up to about two. And, and they range the gamut. The, you know, if you go through the analyses and you see all the films that I've done before, there's some really great ones and some huge stinkers so that, you know, if your film or your screenplay or your novel is similar to a stinker, then you'll have an idea of what you'll be able to do in order to make it better. What I want to do, this is the, the 50th episode, I want to move more towards a practical application of the dramatic theory of story. So the articles, like last week's Schrodinger's Cat, will tend to be a little more theoretical and a little more holistic and kind of out there and kind of explaining how everything works together. But the analyses and the story analytics portion of the narrative first sight are going to be more geared towards a practical application of being able to put this all together. to the analyses for this week. I've got, let's see how many, five different films that I've seen in the last week that I want to talk about. And they range from the amazing to the absurd. So the first one is the one I love, which is something that I mentioned last week, which is a 2014 thriller, sci-fi thriller, starring Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass. Duplass? Uh, and they, they spend a, a weekend at Ted Danson's and Mary Steenburgen's their their beautiful house in Ojai and run into doppelgangers of themselves. They're an estranged couple and they're trying to figure out, you know, exactly if they should stay together, if they should get a divorce. And so they go on this weekend retreat and they actually end up meeting idealized versions of themselves 
And I really love this film. I saw it two years ago, and I'd always been meaning to do an analysis of it and then just didn't think of it until recently and watched it again. And it was funny because the actual story form that I thought originally two years ago, it wasn't, once I actually started to go through it, it wasn't anywhere close to what it actually was. It was actually in a, a different section. If you look, you know, at the top level of Dramatica, you have the genre section and different arrangements of the through lines, the different perspectives, usually can you can attribute to genre. So most uh, action adventure science, science fiction films end up with a main character in universe, an overall story in physics, uh, and then that would put the influence character in mind and the relationship in psychology. That is the general sort of genre of those kind of films. The more psychological thrillers have the overall story in psychology, quite naturally, and the relationship story and activity, and then the main character and influence character bounce back and forth between universe and mind. Mostly it's in universe, but sometimes like with Get Out, it is in mind. That is where you find the genre, and that's that's You'll see that if you go to the Throughline Thursdays, if you go to narrativefirst.com slash throughlines, you can look through and get a general idea of the different genres there and how the different arrangements of throughlines create those genres. Now, right below that is the plot level, the type level. And if you know anything about Dramatica, you know that once you set the concern for one throughline and you, you focus it in, in a certain area of the spectrum of, of narrative that you're trying to tell, it sets the same general location, the same type of conflict in the other three through lines. So if you're addressing problems of the past in one through line, then you will find uh, related concerns of understanding, conceptualizing, and memory. Those four work together. If on the other hand, you are dealing with the future, then the other through lines will address obtaining, becoming, and the subconscious. In that way, the narrative focuses itself in one general area and it, it creates a consistency among the different through lines and there have been instances uh, over the past 20 years where we've found stories where the concerns are in different areas for different through lines and the narrative actually breaks down you're not really sure exactly what it is they're trying to say and i feel like that's a mistake uh, you could drum it up to artistic intent but really it's it's just incompetency if you you know if you want to be honest about it so when it came to the analysis of the one i love i thought for sure it was in one area and it ended up being in a completely different area and as i was actually writing the analysis though i still had in my mind that it what the goal was in a separate location and i could i couldn't reconcile how the goal and consequence worked i just kept going back and forth back and forth and then it occurred to me you know it would be like if you had a problem of conscience, right? So uh, people are too busy trying to do the right thing. They're driven by that. And so let's say that's the problem in the story. But then you are trying to figure out how a goal of conceptualizing fit with the consequence of understanding. And you, already you can tell, well, if they're driven to do the right thing, what does that have to do with understanding? Those don't gel together. What would gel is something like becoming or obtaining. So if you're doing, if you're so focused on doing the right thing, and your goal is to, to transform yourself or to become a better person, that would make sense. Well, I'm, I'm becoming a better person because I'm driven by conscience. You don't say I'm, I'm trying to understand something because I'm driven by conscience. That doesn't really fit together. And so it was funny with the analysis for the one I love, I was completely off until halfway through my run, I was like, oh, that's why. And then I realized where the concern is. And then it all fell into place and was super easy to figure out the rest of the story form. So the Rotten Tomatoes for the one I love, it wasn't a super popular film. I think it's done better uh, streaming and, and afterwards was 80%. 
So the film is only 90 minutes long. Uh, it, and when you watch it, it, you have this feeling that there's something missing. Like it almost ends too quickly. Overall, it had all four through lines. It had an overall story through line, which was, you know, kind of improving their relationship. That had the relationship story through line, which was all about their marriage. And the main character and influence character through lines, they were both, those were both solid. But the overall story was actually kind of downplayed. It was just, it was there, but there could have been more. So a typical film is usually about two hours long. And the reason for that is that is usually the shortest amount of time that you can take to tell a complete story. Now you can do it in 90 minutes if you really cut it down. You note that most animated films hover around 90 minutes. Most of that's done for production reasons, for budgetary reasons, uh, because it's so freaking expensive. But uh, most films average out to about two hours. And that, that's because that's how long it takes to cover all four signposts for all four through lines. Now, occasionally you'll delve into, you know, the huge Lord of the Rings sort of thing where there's like three hours, but then you're not usually telling just one story form. You have a couple different story forms going on and there's a, you know, a different mixture of different things. Even if, you know, if you think of Game of Thrones, the story form for the first season, you know, I forgot how many hours is that 10 or 12 hours to tell that entire story form. But obviously there's other stuff. There's tons of other story forms that are being set up for future seasons. So for the one I love, the reason why it's down to an 80% is because that overall story isn't as developed as it possibly could be. Now there are clues and places where you could improve it, but they spent a lot more time on the relationship story and in particular the main character through line. So the analysis for the one I love, including the story form, uh, and its analytics you'll find at narrativefirst.com slash analysis slash the one I love. Next up is The Fate of the Furious, which I know is everybody's favorite film. Everybody loves The Fate of the Furious. It's all about family. Family's the only thing that matters. <laughs> Let me do my best Vin Diesel. Here we go. You gotta always think about family. All right. <laughs> I love the Fate movies, Fast and the Furious movies. They're amazing. They're really, really great. And if only they would take time to develop a story. So the Rotten Tomatoes for Fate of the Furious was 66%, which is huge. If it was me, I would have given it a 15 if you were basing it strictly on story. There's, there's an overall story. Uh, I don't really think there's much in the way of character or theme. There's certainly plot and there's certainly genre, but anything else beyond that is completely missing it's it's ludicrous as robert mckee would say it's ridiculous there is okay so here's the thing there is a main character through line that could have been something and actually you know what i take that back there is a main character uh genre concern i would even say issue and even elements so i, I will give them the main character for sure and the overall story is there, but it's not heavy on thematics. But influence character and relationship story are completely absent. And there's no reason for it. Like, you could actually plug in what uh, Vin Diesel's character, which I can't remember his name now. Is it Jesse? I don't remember. Uh, that's a bad sign if I can't remember his name. If you plugged in his main character through line, and actually if you set the plot dynamics and the character dynamics, you would have a complete story for him. And Dramatica could actually help you. The Michelle Rodriguez character is obviously supposed to be the influence character. You could actually figure out what her through line is and what her and what their relationship story could have been. And it'll be interesting on the site what I'm going to do is with a film like Fate of the Furious, 
with those missing through lines, I'm going to show, well, it could have been this and show how in other films they had, other more successful films, had a influenced character and a relationship story through line uh, that counterbalanced the same sort of main character and overall story and show how it's a very simple process. I mean, for a signpost, just to get across the signpost, you just need a sentence. You just need a line of dialogue. If you remember, if you've seen the uh, plot progression of Star Wars with Obi-Wan Kenobi, his third signpost is memory. So he's dead, and the memory is just like Luke sitting there remembering how much he misses Ben. And he's just sitting there, and, and Leia's comforting him before he goes off and starts shooting TIE fighters. That little section right there is so, so small in relation to the signpost one of conscious and signpost two of pre-conscious, but it still works. It just, it, it keeps the development of the through line of Ben's perspective going in such a way that it challenges Luke's point of view. So you don't really need that much. So it's not like you would have to take away a lot from Fate of the Furious to make it a much better film. There's no reason why it couldn't be a 95% or 100%. And imagine how crazy it would be if critics actually went to go see a film like this a ludicrous and ridiculous film, ludicrous, and actually saw a great story. And you could make even a billion more dollars. There's no reason why you can't do it. And it's a really simple process. And that's the great thing about understanding Dramatica and how the story form works, because it, once you have the bits and pieces that you like, which are there, it'll tell you how to balance it out to make a great story. Now, the third one up already has a story form on the Dramatica main side, and that's Stand By Me, which is the Rob Reiner film from 86, uh, which you know was, was a film from my childhood and a film that everybody should see. And it was a complete joy, just showing it to the kids again, it was a complete joy watching it again and actually following along with that story form. You'll find that at dramatica.com slash analysis slash Stand By Me. Now, Stand By Me has a Rotten Tomatoes of 91. It's like a 91%. Everybody loves the film. And the reason they love the film isn't because of the nostalgia and the songs they sing. It's because it's got a solid story form. And the novel or the novella has an even stronger story form. But the film itself is a complete story form all the way. And it too, though, is only 90 minutes. So as opposed to something like the one I love, which is 90 minutes, time is not the limiting factor, right? Inside Out, I think, is like 90 minutes. And that is an amazing film. It's just super tight. And the narrative structure is fantastic, perfect, right? Here with Stand By Me, it's less than 90 minutes in length but you still get the overall story of finding the dead body. You get the main character of him dealing with the death of his brother and the guilt he feels for that and that how it should have been him. And then you have Chris Chambers, who's just always standing up for everybody, right? River Phoenix. And then their relationship, which is, it's funny because I almost feel like Goodwill Hunting kind of stole from it, which is like, you know, if you don't get out of here and make, make something of yourself, I'm going to kill you. If you don't get out of here, I'm going to kill you. That's my Ben Affleck. Uh, Chris has that same kind of conversation where it's like, you've got a special gift, you know, you, you can write and you better, you better get out of this town and make something of yourself. So all four through lines are, are in there. And to me, the part that was particularly compelling were the story drivers, which were the story drivers of decision. Most films nowadays and most films in this kind of genre are all about action. They're all action driven stories. And in a complete narrative, the plot points will either all be actions that drive decisions to be made, or they will be decisions that drive actions to be made. And in Stand By Me, it's actually decision-driven, which is why the Will Wheaton character, he feels like he's more comfortable because he's a beer in the story. He prefers to internalize things. So that's in his wheelhouse, is making decisions, like deciding to cut 
across the field, which they end up in the swamp, deciding to go after the body and deciding not to take the body back and actually, you know, pulling the gun at the end. I mean, that's actually signifying his change into the doer aspect of it. But the idea or the the experience of watching a decision-driven film is very different because decisions will be made, whoops, sorry about that, decisions will be made that then inspire people to take action, which is where, you know, you get the Kiefer Sutherland character running after them. They, they make the decisions and then those force actions to happen actions to be made in response to that so you'll want to check that one out again that's on the dramatica main site it's already up the stand by me story form and if you want you can compare it to the one i love and see the difference in being able to tell a complete story in 90 minutes that you can still do it if you're smart about the different through lines and you create a balanced whole between all four perspectives Next up, I have The Edge of Seventeen, which was a film that came out, I believe, last year about uh, a girl on the edge of 17 trying to uh, deal with high school life and growing up and dealing with the loss of her father. Now, this is an amazingly complex and sophisticated film. It's hard to classify it in any kind of genre. I mean, it's a coming-of-age film, and so there is a certain sort of genre that appears with the different alignment of through lines, the different perspectives there, there's a, a typical sort of alignment there. But the way in which it's handled and the way in which it's kind of doled out, the way it's woven together, the story weaving process, is very compelling and very different. And the acting on both sides is tremendous. It takes stuff that is typical, stuff that you've kind of seen before, and it's a new spin on it. And the way, the reason why it works, the reason why it has a Rotten Tomatoes of 95%, and why it's so successful is because it has that strong story form. The entire thing is actually there. Uh, it's honest and it's sincere in its portrayal of that story form. And it, it gives us a relationship that we don't usually see nowadays, which is the brother-sister-sibling relationship. That, that is the heart of the story, the relationship story through line. And his influence on her, the way he challenges her, in the the way he acts and the things he does all that stuff it's just it's wonderful how it all balances out right now there are two i'm still in the same area essentially i'm down to uh, the character element level so it's one of those four elements at the bottom there is either going to be the problem and the other one's going to be the symptom and i'm pretty sure i know where it is i just i have to check it again again Uh, When you watch film for the first time, you'll get a sense, you get to enjoy it, you get the experience of it, and you might have hints of what the actual story form is, but it's only after a couple days, and I just saw this film, uh, what, three days ago? After a couple days, it starts to sink in, and you stop thinking about the actual storytelling, and you get into the actual story structure of it, and you can be able to determine where that story form is. So that's The Edge of Seventeen. If you haven't seen it yet, definitely, definitely see it. Uh, Woody Harrelson's in it plays a great teacher, and uh, actually every, everybody in it's fantastic. And lastly, last night I saw Spider-Man Homecoming, which I was nervous to see because I could have sworn somebody told me it wasn't a complete story, didn't think it would have a complete story form, and of course with the Rotten Tomatoes of 92%, that doesn't really fall in line with my whole idea that uh, Rotten Tomatoes equals complete story form. But I was pleased to see that it was. Now this film I think is five hours long. <laughs> no, it's a... Uh, Two hours, 15 minutes long. 
uh, it feels extremely, extremely long. And that's because the the influence character and relationship story through lines are dialed way down in the mix. I mean, they are there and they show up conveniently at times when, when Peter needs a little pushing, a little challenging. So they are there, but they're dialed down to like a one or a two if you on a scale of like one to 10, if you had some dials. The overall story is 10. It's pegged maybe even to 11. Uh, and the main character actually is up there too, nine or 10. Actually, I would probably say, you know, I would say the main character through line of Spider-Man's up at a 10, and the overall story is at a 9.5 or a 9. Uh, and it's great, the connection between the main character's problem and the overall story problem, it's really clear. And how both solutions work out, I thought either A, they they know Dramatica, or B, they just have a really intuitive sense of, of creating a, a strong story. But the, the, the only kind of deficient parts, which is probably maybe it makes it a little bit difficult about halfway through. It gets a little monotonous and a little, uh, you lose the humor and the, the warmth of it. And that's because the influence character and relationship story through lines are so downplayed and so like turned down that you get all logic stuff and you just get all overall story and they have to get, get out a bunch of information there. And so you kind of miss the character moments. You miss that character stuff. But when it comes back, then it, it feels great again. So that, that's the only down part in it. That's why the two hour 15, it feels, if you felt that the film was a little bit long, it's really fun and enjoyable. So it's not, it's not like a horrible experience. But if you had felt that it was kind of running on in certain areas, that's just because it was playing out a lot of, of overall story stuff. Lastly, this week, I want to talk about the How to Train Your Dragon analysis that's on the site and the text message conversation I had with my daughter, Katie. In addition to influencing people with articles and analysis and podcasts, I also try and influence everybody in my house. And it's funny because just before I started recording this podcast, she sent me a text message that says, I think 1984 did the you and I thing. <laughs> so... Uh, the two of us are reading 1984. She's reading it for school. I'm reading it for fun. And I didn't read it for fun the first time around when I was in high school. And we're going to do an analysis of it. And she will be the youngest certified Dramatica Story expert. So if you're interested in becoming a certified Dramatica Story expert, you might want to hurry up before my daughter beats you. But she, I guess she was in class today and she noticed that they did the the you and I thing, which is the, you know, you and I are both alike there's that montage that Chris and Melanie put together, which is completely hilarious, and Chris continues to uh, add to. And I, you know, I'm, I find things like that all the time. We, we found it in Doctor Zhivago earlier this year. The Lego Batman movie makes fun of it. There's an actual reason for it because of where the main character and influence character perspectives are situated within uh, the narrative structure. But she was really excited because she felt like, oh, I think I found it, and she had done. Uh, a presentation, I guess, a couple of weeks ago about which one was a beer and which one was a doer, the, the main character and influence character of 1984. So I responded, awesome. I thought that was great. And then she wrote back, I mean, whenever two characters say something like, I see myself in you, or we're not so different, that's the you and I thing, right? <laughs> and that's exactly what it is. So I can't wait to see where that is. Uh, she's reading it faster than I am. Because, oh, that's the other thing. Please read Children of Time uh, by Adrian Tchaikovsky. That story is so amazing. I had uh, a director friend of mine suggest it as a book to read. It won the 
2016 Arthur C. Clarke Award last year. And so I started to read it Sunday in like 10, 20 minutes in, there's something that happens and completely locks you in and I, I can't stop reading it. It's completely fascinating and amazing and it's a great read. So it's called Children of Time. So if you haven't read it, make sure you check that out. And of course, once my daughter and I finish the 1984 analysis, I will put it up on Narrative First so that you can read it. But until then, you can check out the Training the Next Generation of Storytellers blog post because she is a huge How to Train Your Dragon fan, which is a film that I animated on, and she wanted to know who the protagonist and antagonist of the film was. And of course, I have a series of articles on it where I, I brought up something that I, was a bit perhaps controversial uh, back in 2010, it's probably much more accepted now, the idea that uh, Hiccup himself is the antagonist and his father is the actual protagonist. And there are plenty of explanations for that, but we actually went through and had a huge text messaging back and forth. And it's funny to see how her understanding of narrative structure grows with the different ideas that I throw out there trying to get her to come up with the idea herself and to actually see it for herself, which is a lot of like what I do when I work with writers and producers and directors trying to get this sort of story out of them. You can kind of see how that works in this text message back and forth. So I'll leave a link to that in the show notes, training the next generation of storytellers. And of course, be on the lookout for our comprehensive analysis of 1984. I thought it would be great to share our conversation because I've had this conversation a lot. The idea that the protagonist and main character end up in the same player and the influence character and the antagonist end up in the same player is just a, it's a shortcut. It's a, a way of telling a story without, you know, really diving into it. Like I said in the beginning, combining the main character point of view and the objective function of the protagonist into the same player creates a hero. That's your typical hero, diehard uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars, The Matrix, those are your heroes. They, they drive the story forward and they have a personal point of view that's unique to them that the audience gets to share. When you combine the influence character perspective with the objective character of function of antagonist, you get your villain. And like I said, that's like the Dark Knight where you have the antagonist who's trying to prevent or reconsider, you know, trying going for that consequence. And they also have the challenging uh, emotional point of view. You know, you and I are just alike, you know, you're a freak just like me, you know, like that, that scene. That is the influence character perspective. So it's very, uh, it's a very simple approach to structuring a story. You know, you put both the objective concerns and subjective concerns in the same sort of players and you just hash it out between the two of them. But if you then try to apply that same thinking to how to train your dragon, it doesn't sound quite right. Because if Julian Hoxter is right and Stoic is the antagonist, he's very definitely the influence character. So is he a villain? D does it sound like Stoic is the villain of the piece? There really isn't a villain in how to train your dragon. And if you put the protagonist and main character into Hiccup, is he really a hero? I mean, you could maybe say at the end he comes across as a hero by whatever definition you had, but he really isn't going towards something. And the thing that I discovered about seven years ago right after working on the film, the thing that I thought that was so brilliant, which I know they didn't do on purpose, it just came out, was this idea of splitting the protagonist 
and antagonist and flopping them. Stoic is actually the protagonist and influence character, and Hiccup is the main character and antagonist. Now, that's people's heads are going to explode. Like, how can a main character be an antagonist? The same way that they didn't understand why the main character isn't always the protagonist. But that is a great film to get that point across because it's Stoic who's actually pursuing training the next generation of dragon killers. He's the one, the, the town is all destroyed, and it's like, all right, let's do it. I'm, I'm going to go kill me some dragons. I need the next round. Train them. He's the one pursuing that. And Hiccup is the one trying to avoid it or prevent it and trying to get them to reconsider. He's actually the antagonist. So that's why at the end of the film, it feels it's a failure good story. So it feels very bittersweet. And it's not just because he's lost his leg. It's because structurally there has been a failure to achieve the goal, which is training the next generation of dragon killers. They don't learn to kill dragons. Instead, they get that consequence of conceiving which is conceiving a different way of living with your enemy. It's like getting this idea of, hey, we should work together. And that's exactly what Hiccup was all about. So objectively, those functions are very clear. They're very, they're just set. The protagonist pursues and considers, the antagonist prevents and reconsiders, but the subjective point of view, the main character and influence character, that main character personal perspective doesn't always have to be within the protagonist. It can be, as in the case of How to Train Your Dragon, in the antagonist. Now, earlier this year, I posted a, a, a blog post about all the influence characters that are protagonists, and there's a whole list of them. If you think of The Terminator, the original film, uh, Reese is the protagonist, but Sarah is the main character. Uh, if you think of Brokeback Mountain, Jack, is the influence character, the Jake Gyllenhaal character. He's the influence character and the protagonist. He's the one pursuing the relationship. That's a flop there. Uh, let's see what else. Sideways is another one uh, where Jack is the influence character and the protagonist. So he's the one that's challenging Paul Giamatti's character with you know a different way of seeing things as he's also trying to pursue you know being this kind of scummy guy before his his wedding. And, of course, you have the great Gatsby. Gatsby is the influence character protagonist. And the one that we discovered earlier this year, which was E.T. the Extraterrestrial, where E.T. is both influence character and protagonist. He's the one trying to phone home. He's the one trying to go home. And he also has a different way of experiencing loss that challenges Elliot. So, as you can see, being able to split apart the protagonist and antagonist from main character and influence character gives you a whole wider range, a broader understanding of narrative structure that you can then infuse your stories with. They become more complex and more sophisticated and, uh, I guess, more intelligent in a way that it doesn't become rote. It just doesn't become just mindlessly plugging in a bunch of characters and a bunch of events, something like Fate of the Furious. Like, you can actually make that amazing by... I mean, Imagine if you had made Michelle Rodriguez the influence character and protagonist, and then, you know, Vin Diesel's character was the main character in their relationship. You could have done so much to make that a great story, and it wouldn't have taken that much energy. It just takes know-how. It just takes understanding how to fit all those pieces together. So if you get a chance, make sure you check out Training the Next Generation of Storytellers and read along. It gives you a good idea of the kind of conversations I like to have with people where I don't just tell them flat out, oh, this is how it works. I'm, I'm, not, like, I'm not like most story experts who spend an entire weekend just telling you exactly how it is. And, you know, if you ask questions, I make fun of you or, 
lambast you for even daring to question the sanctity of what it is that I'm saying. I actually like being able to bring people to an understanding that actually like help them get to that place where they come up with the answers themselves. And so I felt like this conversation was a great example of that. So I will leave a link to this in the show notes to both the article about training the next generation of storytellers so you can read the conversation and also the one to the influenced characters as protagonists. Whatever you do, don't lose sight of progress. Don't lose sight of moving forward and evolving with the improvements in understanding of story structure. I guess it is easier in some respects to just rely on your intuition and to just go with your gut feelings and to just write whatever's out there. But eventually you're going to run into a place where you're going to come face to face with your own blind spots. You're going to be faced with the reason why you want to write in the first place. The reason why we have motivation psychologically is because we have blind spots. There are things that we don't understand that are motivating, motivating us to, to write stories. And the same thing is going to happen in the actual story that you write. You're going to get to a place where your own blind spots prevent you from completing your story and making it a, a complete narrative. Now, there are structures and there are tools now to fill in those blind spots and make it easier for you to evolve along with the rest of humanity. Now, you could be a Luddite and hold a torch and, and claim blasphemy and claim people heretical for, you know, trying to use technology to improve the quality of storytelling. Uh, you will be labeled a computer nerd, which is probably the worst thing you could be called. Uh, I don't even think anybody cares about being called a computer nerd nowadays. It's like a, a 1950s terminology to bully somebody. It's like something you would hear about in Stand By Me. But at least you will be moving forward. You'll be developing. You'll be progressing to... Uh, to develop a, a stronger sense of story, to get to a place where your instincts become fused with this greater understanding with progress, and you'll be able to balance between the two. Uh, I just finished a conversation with the writer just before starting to record this podcast about how uh, dramatic has this uh, tendency to attract more linear type thinkers because it's got boxes and it's got things that laid out and you answer all these questions and it attracts computer nerds, right? So you still need that instinctual feeling to be able to balance between the two and balance between analysis and creation and back and forth. But if you just stick in the intuitive part of it and the gut instinctual part of it, you're going to have something that has missing pieces. You're going to have something that has holes. And if you just do the analysis part and you just do the, the linear, just like straight theoretical structure, you'll have something that's quite boring and it has too much, has too much information. You have to be able to balance between the two, but you can't just stay back. You get, there's just, it's, it's been released. It's, it's out, it's out there. Uh, and my hope is that through Narrative First, I'll be able to make it easier for people to write better stories and to be able to express themselves and to create narrative structures that communicate what's deep within their hearts. That's it for this week. If you have any questions or comments or you have any ideas of what would be helpful to you as a writer, or if you're a producer, part of a management company, and you work with a bunch of writers and you would like to understand how you can use these story analytics to improve the quality of storytelling, please contact me at narrativefirst.com contact. Have a great week of writing and I will see you next time.